The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Well, are you feeling stressed? Just about, we've all been feeling stressed. There's so many things in the world, which I don't have to repeat. (laughs) Just the words are stressful to hear. Um, but now on top of the things that we've been stressed out about uh, earlier in the year and last year, <laughs> um, we now have the holidays coming upon us. And even though, of course, the, that can be a wonderful time, it's supposed to be a wonderful spiritual time, but of course it also brings um, stresses, stresses of getting having the family get together and, and uh, different kinds of dysfunctional relationships rear their uh, head and... Um, presence and you know of course money is you know the fact that money is tight is is worse during the holidays because uh because we want money for presents as well um and also one of the things i've been hearing about is how this year people seem to be buying more presents for themselves and i really have i have um, sort of ambivalent about that yes it's nice to treat yourself well but on the other hand this is supposed to be about giving the spirit of giving and all anyhow um, given that um, this is a stressful time, I invited my guest on the show who is going to help you. So today, uh, this show is called Stressed Out, Get a Buddha Brain. Now, all right, you're wondering, what in the world is a Buddha brain? <laughs> well, my guest, Dr. Rick Hansen, who is a neuropsychologist and the author of the new book, Just One Thing, Developing a Buddha Brain, One Simple Practice at a Time, is going to explain it to us. So, Dr. Rick, welcome to the show. Dr. Carroll, it's a pleasure to be here, and you definitely got a chuckle out of me when I heard your title for the show today. (laughs) Um, You know, before we get into Buddha Brains and all, have you been hearing that on the radio about, or wherever in the media, about people buying more presents for themselves this year? I haven't. That's very interesting. Yeah, I um I mean, you know, it's 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 sort of uh it, I I feel ambivalent about it. Again, it's kind of, you know, I'm sure you teach people and I think that's a lot of what this is, you know, in, in a sense you're giving people gifts by teaching them how to have a Buddha brain, how to how to get rid of stress and so on. Um but but it, there just seems to be something sort of, you know, what's wrong, one of the things that's wrong with our culture is how narcissistic we've all gotten. Mm-hmm. And so the idea of now buying more presents for ourselves at Christmas just seems to be another extension of that. That's really interesting. Well, it's like a two-edged sword, isn't it? I mean, on the one hand, as you well know, people have to get on their own side. And that's where it starts. Okay. That's, that's the first chapter in the book, you know, because it's so fundamental. And 
they have to be for themselves, not against others, but for themselves. And that yeah. clinically and as well as in personal growth or spiritual practice, that's often the, the, the biggest hurdle. It's the first hurdle, but it's the one you have to come over to be on your own side, you know, to be a friend to yourself. But then how do you not tip all the way into narcissism around <laughs> that? To be sure, I, you know, you think of the title of that great book some years ago, Bowling Alone, about the social isolation of people in America these days. Hmm. You know, I never heard of that. That, that sounds like it was a great book. Oh, it's interesting, just real fast. Um, I think in 1980, the average number of organizations that, a, that, that an average American belonged to was five or more. Hmm. If you count things like the Girl Scouts, the PTA, the Kiwanis, what have you, uh, today, it's, I believe, one. That's the average number of organizations mm. a person belongs to. And so people are definitely, I, I, I thought of writing an essay one time called Schizoid Nation, you know, about mm. people disconnected from each other in their caves, walking around with their iPods and so on. Yes. Um, yeah, maybe buying presents for oneself is a symptom, yeah. a larger <laughs> social disconnection. Yes, and especially if they do it online. <laughs> yeah, really, then they're really in their upholstered cave alone. <laughs> Shopping alone, not just bowling alone. Yes, right. That's right. Um, yes, when the only size you need to know is your own. Right? Then you're in trouble. They, then you need more friends, right? Right. <laughs> That's really true. Well, um, now normally, let, let me um, introduce you a little bit more. You, your first, this is your second book. Actually, technically, it's my third, real fast. The first one was um, Mother Nurture uh, mm-hmm. by Penguin. It was about uh, the long-term um, health and well-being and intimate friendship and intimate partnership um, after kids come along. You know, in other words, past the postpartum period. You know, when women, mothers, typically fall off the radar of the healthcare establishment. That book came out just a few months after 9-11. I know you... Um, are deeply grounded in um, that territory of terrorism. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it did not help with the book at all. That was my very first one. But then the one that came out just a couple years ago, you are about to mention probably, is Buddha's Brain. Yes. So Buddha's Brain, the Practical Neuroscience of Happiness, Love, and Wisdom, and it's uh, in 21 languages. Um, Why don't we start, actually, because, you know, uh, with that, and then go into the, your current book in terms of, I mean, I'd like to know, you're a neuropsychologist. Mm-hmm. You've, you've um, taught at Oxford, Stanford, Harvard, and meditation centers all over the world. Mm-hmm. Um, how did, if you could take us through your journey, how you got involved in that, and how each of these books came as a result of more enlightenment uh, on your sure. journey. Oh, thank you. That's a kind question, and I'll I'll try to keep it short, not you know, blather on here really fast. I think sometimes about early life experiences, particularly not a, not so much your experience, but the sort of attitude you had as a kid, and how that is actually a theme that runs through the lives of adults. So I'm yeah. I'm in my 60th year, you know, so I've had some life as an adult. Anyway, for me as a kid, I had this deep abiding sense that more happiness was available. And I grew up in a pleasant enough family in a good neighborhood, whatever, but I could just see people endlessly, you know, bickering with each other, being needlessly anxious, feeling needlessly bad about themselves with me as Exhibit A. So I've always been very interested in happiness. I went to college, graduated in 74. I caught um, the main surge of the human potential movement there, and I you know, had a lot of experience with that, as well as an introduction to contemplative practice. I started meditating in 1974, mainly um, Zen, sort of Zen-influenced stuff. When I bounced around, was a business consultant, um, and then went back to graduate school 
uh, got my Ph.D., I think I was 39 then, and then uh, dove pretty deeply into what it takes to support mothers long-term, because to me that's one of the most highly leveraged public health investments mm. we can do. But right around that time, around 15 years ago, um, I also returned to my roots kind of in Buddhism, really surged back into that as a training of the mind, you know, in a non-theistic frame. So let that, me just ask you, where yeah. did you grow up? Where did I grow? Oh, Southern California. Um, I know Beverly Hills uh, to some extent, and uh, uh, in the suburbs, um, tract homes, you know, with the kind of haunting imagery of orange trees continually trying to break through the Dicondra lawns and, you know, the driveways and the cracks in the sidewalks. Um, so that's where I grew up. I okay. went to UCLA, moved up to the Bay Area in the 80s, and I've been up here ever since. Okay. So I was just beginning to say that about 15 years ago, um, at the same time that there's been an explosion, really, in knowledge about the brain, as you know, um, I began getting very, very interested in how we could apply these um, breakthroughs in neuroscience, particularly with reference to what's called experience-dependent neuroplasticity, the basic idea that what we think and feel, where we place our attention and what we do with what's in a, the field of our attention is continually shaping the brain. The structure of the brain is always changing. The only question is, for better or worse, and who's mm. doing the changing? So in the last um, 10, 15 years, I've done a lot of writing and teaching and then coalescing as a book um, about how to actually, grounded in science, informed somewhat with contemplative wisdom, but also very informed by Western psychology, how to actually use targeted mental activity, just thoughts and feelings and various activities in the mind itself, how to do that in specifically targeted ways to light up the neural circuits of wholesome factors of mind, positive factors like resilience, strength, common decency, sticking up for others, you know, standing up against your own inner critics uh, inside the mind and so forth. How to do that. So if you stimulate those neural circuits, you strengthen them. Again, as you hmm. know, because in the famous saying, neurons that fire together, wire together, <laughs> you know. So if you get a lot of those neurons firing together in a positive way, then you can get them wiring together as well, you know, gradually wiring good resources into the fabric of the brain and the self. So that's been hmm. my focus. I don't produce research. I consume a ton of it, and then I try to essentialize it and apply it. And that's what that book was, has been about. Huh. That, that's really fascinating. Okay. So well, that was the that was the first book. That was Buddhist Brain. Yeah. Okay. That's right. And then to keep it going. Okay, real. Yeah. Again, I, I don't like to talk about myself too much, but that's okay. <laughs> I'll, I'll try to get over my my roots are kind of North Dakota, you know. And your roots are when North Dakota. That's where uh -huh. my dad's from. He grew up on a ranch there. Uh -huh. and, um, that even though I grew up in Southern California, somehow I feel Midwestern mm -hmm. <laughs> in some ways. Anyway, um, and then uh, the last uh, building on Buddhist Brain, which is just actually been, you know, very successful, and I'm happy about that and, and grateful for that. Um, I wanted to write a book that was kind of built on this newsletter I just stumbled onto, the idea of creating a simple practice to think about. I do one a week. Uh, the newsletter is called Just One Thing. You know, we're all so busy, as you said, stress. we got so much on our mind. We need to simplify, you know. But if you have just one thing in the back of your mind that's your personal practice, you know, this week, this month, this year, or this minute, whatever. You know, it's your personal practice. It's kind of what you're thinking about or trying to do in your mind, you know, when you can remember it a few times a day. And if we all, you know, well, 
with a practice like that, you could really gradually keep changing your brain for the better, kind of in little bits every day. So that's what I wrote about. And that newsletter has been, again, very popular, so it surprised me. And I created a book out of it uh, full of little simple things, none of which I've invented. Um, and yet they're all neurologically informed, and I've really refined them and made them practical and down-to-earth that anyone can do. You know, the first book, Buddha's Brain, was a little more technical. Um, this one's extremely accessible. I actually had an interviewer pay me the compliment of saying that he thought it was a bathroom book. <laughs> I started laughing. <laughs> it's okay. You know, one sentence at a time, one paragraph at a time, one thing at a time, you know, one bathroom trip at a time. It's really okay. So that's what this one's about. Really down to earth, completely accessible, the kind of book you can really give, uh, you know, to your grandmother, um, you know, without any thought about it or or to your teenage kid. Hmm. Um, so that's what that book is. So, um, you know, it's interesting because I um, practice from a Freudian point of view, or at least yeah. a psychoanalytic point mm-hmm. of view. And, um, I mean, essentially it's the same idea as far as um, looking at how early experiences that, you know, shape our brain psychologically, um, emotionally, uh, to to determine what we do later on, and you're talking about it from a, a brain physiology kind of point of view. Yeah, you know, I, I was too trained psychoanalytically uh, in my PhD program, and um, <clears throat> it's interesting how, in how many ways Freud has turned out to be right, including about you know the dynamic unconscious and so forth. And you know, while the brain is um, particularly sensitive in childhood, you know, the first 10 years, especially the first five, especially the first few, um, we are lifelong learners. And again, we're learning for better or worse. You know, we're learning on the one hand potentially to be more anxious or self-critical or guilty or irritated with others, or alternately, we're learning how to be more resilient, um, stronger inside, uh, more compassionate, more insightful. Either way, we're changing the brain. The, the news is that the news is around, not, the news is not around, the breaking news is not around, the brain changes. You know, actually there's some early writings of Freud, I've, I've come across, you may have seen them yourself, where he talks about um, how great it will be uh, when biological understanding is advanced enough to really appreciate the changes in the brain that are occurring based on, you know, mental activities. You know he was originally a neurologist, that's mm-hmm. what he, his first books were on the nervous system, I think of fish or things like that. But there just wasn't the knowledge base then to know what in the world was going on in the black box. But these days, now, we're beginning. I still think we're kind of in the age of alchemy. You know, it, it isn't yet a real science, you know. We, we happen to know that if you do certain things, you'll light up some circuits and get a good result. But there isn't yet the deep analytic understanding of the brain that's present, say, in chemistry, you know, with mm-hmm. things like the periodic table. That said, there's still a lot of low-hanging fruit today that's grounded in science that people can pluck and, you know, change their brains for the better and therefore their lives for the better. Yes, absolutely. Well, why don't you um, start giving us some examples? Yeah, happy to. Well, I'll give you a couple. And um, one is, you know, the brain has what scientists call a negativity bias. There are some exceptions to that particularly related to personal memory where people will kind of edit out pain or repress it, or sometimes they'll, they'll make bets toward the future that are wildly optimistic. But in general, you know, the, we evolved a brain, the product, the product of 600 million years of evolution, that is very uh, prone to look for threat and then react intensely to threat 
and store that reaction immediately, once burned, twice shy. For example, uh, there's the familiar finding in couples counseling research, marriage research, that stable long-term relationships, married or not, need at least a five-to-one ratio of positive to negative interactions. In effect, one negative interaction is as powerful as five positive ones. Or think about the research on learned helplessness, how easy it is to cultivate, whether in dogs or humans, a sense of futility and defeat and kind of giving up. Mm-hmm. Or, or the ways in which, as I said, the brain is um, dedicated to fast-tracking negative experiences into emotional memory, implicit memory. But positive experiences have just standard-issue memory systems unless they're million-dollar moments. And as any school teacher knows, you have to hold something in awareness 5, 10, 20 seconds in a row, ideally with repetition, for it to transfer from short-term memory buffers to long-term storage. But how often do we actually do that with positive Wait, experience? wait, wait. You're going to have to go back and yep. explain this a little sure. more, um, you yep. know, in a little more uh, um, conversational language. Um, I, I mean, you know, first of all, what's one thing that I sort of grabbed onto is, yes, of course, when um, when we have ne- negative experiences, yeah. we tend to repress them, but um, but that takes so much psychological energy to keep those things repressed, which takes away from our being able to use our mind and, and our energies, our resources, uh, in a more positive way to do more positive things or to think more positively. Um, so, so there is that, so that even though, you know, in a sense, yes, we're not, we, we do repress it, we're not really, we're putting it out of our, our consciousness, but on the other hand, it's at a price. Sure, and, and then, of course, think of all the um, emotional memories we accumulate where there really isn't repression. You know, we might forget the specific event with, you know, our irritating supervisor at work, let's say, but it, we, the, an emotional residue of that remains. A little bit of brain structure forms around that emotional memory. Uh, the net effect of it is to make the brain like Velcro for negative experiences, but Teflon for positive ones. Mm-hmm. You know, positive experiences basically go through the brain like water through a sieve, but negative ones get caught every time. So there's kind of a design flaw that, you know, it worked really great. Back in the Serengeti, you know, when our ancestors were evolving, uh, once burned, twice shy, you know. Um, but today, this is a design flaw in the brain, this tilt toward the negative. So the second practice in my book is to take in the good. In other words, to look for good facts, and then when you find them, particularly the small, everyday facts of daily life, you know, you got a load of laundry done, you put the kids to bed, you survived your childhood, you know, you, you got through a load of emails, whatever it is, people are smiling Cookies taste good, coffee smells fantastic, uh, and so on. When you, reg- when you see those positive facts, don't just let them flow through your, your brain and your mind like water through a sieve, but savor them. Take 10, 20 seconds in a row privately to really rest your mind upon them. Get those neurons firing together, and then sense and intend that that experience is transferring to, you know, sinking into you. It's going into your memory. It's becoming part of you. So it's a very simple practice, three steps. Look for good facts and let them become a good experience, number one. Number two, savor it. Number three, sense that it's sinking in. Any single time you do it usually won't change your life, but half a dozen times a day I've known innumerable people who've had major changes there. And I think while even though there's very little research on savoring, uh, what there is is suggestive of its power, and also the ton of research, as you know, on positive emotions really supports this idea of taking in the good. 
Yes, I think that that's uh, really an excellent idea, and it's very, it's, you know, it just takes uh, being conscious of it and, and making an effort to to remind yourself to do it. Yeah. Um, it is really, it is really unfortunate that we tend to dwell on all the things that are wrong. Um, right. And 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 presumably uh, make those neural neural pathways stronger. Yes, that's right. Well, um, I hear the music. We need to appreciate the music, but at the same time, <laughs> at the same time, take a break. My guest is Dr. Rick Hansen. His latest book is called Just One Thing, Developing a Buddha Brain, One Simple Practice at a Time. We've just talked about one of them, and we'll hear more. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, helping you if you are stressed out, and who isn't, um, helping you to get a Buddha brain with my guest, Dr. Rick Hansen. He is a neuropsychologist, and he's the author of the new book called Just One Thing, Developing a Buddha Brain, One Simple Practice at a Time. And we just heard about one example of one of these practices. Um, and I just wanted to ask you, to, uh, before we get into some more, just to describe um, what you mean by uh, getting a bo- developing a Buddha brain. Oh, sure. It's a, it's a great question. Well, the original meaning of Buddha is to understand deeply. That's what it means. And so the historical Siddhartha 2,500 years ago was considered one who understands really, really deeply, the Buddha. Okay, that's the origin of it. But it's a, it's a universal term. You know, we only have, there's only one kind of brain, basically. It's a human brain. It comes in different subtle shades and flavors, but it's essentially just one human brain. So in the deep sense of the idea of developing a brain that truly understands what's involved in being fundamentally happy, fundamentally strong and loving and wise, which is my definition of a Buddha brain. Uh, we're all on the road to developing a Buddha brain, hopefully, one way or another. And so whether someone's Jewish, Christian, 
Muslim, atheist, agnostic, or none of the above, right? Uh, we're all, you know, we all would benefit from developing more of that brain that truly is strong and unconditionally happy. So that's what I mean by developing a Buddha mm-hmm. brain, one simple mm-hmm. practice at a time. Um, and certainly society, <laughs> and certainly society needs that more than ever because we seem to be going into uh, the opposite direction. Yeah, it is. This one of the you know kind of background themes in the book is the power of a biological evolution to shape the brain mm-hmm. and the ways in which uh, tendencies and capacities that worked great for handing on you know gene copies and survival of the fittest and so forth today are really problematic. You know, and one of them uh, I think a lot about uh, is anxiety and fear. How mm-hmm. we're bred. You know, fear was the first emotion. Rule one in the wild is eat lunch today, don't be lunch today. Hmm. And consequently, we're very, you know, first of all, we have a kind of hardwired background trickle of anxiety that's always going. Uh, In some people, it's more of a, you know, a stream or a flood. And then that ongoing trickle of anxiety keeps us vigilant, looking around for threat, even though most of the time there's nothing around us. It really is not threat level orange, for example, all around us. But we're very vulnerable to thinking that it is. So several of the core practices in the book are really about letting go of it, needless anxiety. There's a place for being anxious about real threats, obviously, and taking appropriate action toward them. But to be needlessly anxious, to, to, to feel unnecessarily apprehensive or guarded about speaking from your heart, for example, mm-hmm. or asking for what you want or what you need in a personal relationship, that's, that's a burden a person doesn't need to have. Or to go through their days and, and to think that if they speak out at work or dream a bigger dream, you know, reach for a higher star, they'll be shot down. You know, following the Japanese proverb, the nail that stands out gets hammered down. You know, mm-hmm. living with that fear, like that's a burden on people they don't need to have. And, and as you know, anxiety, um, tr- you know, triggers stress reactions in the body, in which then cascade uh, and become, you know, a, um, a factor for mental and physical health problems. So for all those reasons, one of my favorite practices is to simply notice that you're all right right now. In other Mm -hmm. words, you may not have been all all right in the past, and you may not be all right in the future, but in this moment, you can really notice and register and then take in the good of this experience for just a few seconds at a time that you're actually basically okay. Not a millionaire, not a movie star, unless you are, either or both, what have you, but basically you're all right. You know, now there are moments when we're not basically all right right now. Okay, I'm not talking about rose-colored glasses here. Um, but when we are all right right now, taking a few breaths or taking a, a few thoughts or taking a few moments to really register that is a powerful practice for many people. Yes, that's a very good point. Um, to appreciate the times that we really are, you know, our our tummies are full. We're not hungry. We're not uh, we're not overly tired. I mean. <laughs> Yes. Of course, those moments are few and far between, but when, we, when we're not, um, you know, when we're sitting in a comfortable chair, I mean, just kind of the basic sorts of things, I assume, is what you're talking about. We don't That's have a right. lion uh, breathing down our neck or, yeah. or the boss at that moment, uh, those kinds of things. That's exactly right. In this moment, there's a kind of body sense that you, you know, that's founded in truth. There's like a recognition. Well, actually, in this moment, I'm all right. Um, in this moment, I'm all right. And as people keep coming back to noticing that, 
they really are then, again, weaving those um, resource experiences of feeling safe and confident and strong and protected and, and okay, you know. There's no war here. There's no tiger about to jump. Mm-hmm. You, you can lower your guard. You can soften and open. You can, you can say more what you really think and feel. You can ask more for what you want, etc. You know, then as people have those experiences, and particularly when they savor them and relish them and register them, then they're weaving those resource experiences into the fabric of their brain and therefore their self. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm sure um, you've thought a lot about and maybe even talked about, um, you know, the whole idea of 2012 fast approaching. Yeah. Um, you think, you know, th- this concept of thinking that we're all right um, in the moment I mean, so many people are, even if they won't admit it to themselves or to other people, um, they there really is this. The media has been has been um, making us think about it so much. You know, twenty twelve, twenty twelve, the world is going to come to an end, and so on. Yeah. Um, that it's it's been it's making it harder. It will be harder during that year. I bet you we're, we're probably going to see a lot more. Uh, stress illnesses, a lot more accidents, a lot more drug and alcohol abuse because people, you know, and they may not know to re- that they should, that this is related to this uh, ongoing fear of it being 2012. Yeah. Oh, I, I hear you, and I, I there some people really get into it. My brother's, pre- he lives in Australia, and he's quite preoccupied, so this is close to home here for me. Uh-huh. Um, I think that it helps I've known so many people who, when they realize that the brain is designed to be irrationally afraid, it's designed to be that way. When they hear that, it's like a it's like a light bulb goes off and a load drops from their shoulders. Because then they, I've actually, I had a man come up to me uh, at a workshop I taught once and just to really thank me uh, because he said I've struggled with feeling ashamed of myself all my life because I'm anxious. And um, there's no shame in it. It's, you know, from Mother Nature's standpoint, it's a virtue, right? Um, so that's one thing. And the second thing, of course, is to, frankly, appreciate all the things that could go wrong that don't. In other words, think of all the years that have gone by without some kind of, you know, world-ending event. Um, think of all the predictions of world-ending events that have come and gone, including just in the last year, mm-hmm. you, know, with no, um, you know, with no basis to them. And then I think, frankly, being aware of people who are getting, you know, various kinds of uh, mileage out of playing on people's fears. Yes. Right? You know, uh, I think that there's an ancient, an age-old story that runs throughout history, uh, human history of, you know, various groups uh, playing on fears in the public mm-hmm. to gain or hold on to profit or power. Mm-hmm. And it's an old, old story, you know, not just over the last dozen years or so. Uh, in America. And so, um, you know, again, as you start to realize that they're lying to you, <laughs> you know, Mother Nature's lying to you. She's like worm tongue in Lord of the Rings, whispering in your ear, be afraid, be very afraid. But you don't really, really need to be most of the time. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's true. Yeah. Um, that's true. I mean, I guess is one of the things that you suggest um, that people think about, for example, if... Um, if they're driving home and they, it's raining and and like in California, you know, yeah, everybody sure. goes into a panic when uh, when it rains. Um, but you know, thinking about how all the times in the past that they've driven home in the rain and that they've gotten there safely. 
Yes, that's a beautiful example. Um, another in the book, I, I have a little practice called relax, but it's not just the usual, uh, you know, think about white fluffy clouds. It's where I get into, you know, in a paragraph length, the nitty-gritty of the two systems in the body that, on the one hand, kick us into stress responses, fighting fight or flight, sympathetic nervous system, as you know, uh, and then it's calming, soothing, rest and digest, quote-unquote, antidote the parasympathetic wing of the nervous system. And so I go into a variety of practices, little things people can do that are known to activate this calming, soothing antidote to stress reactivity. Yeah, like exhaling. You know, again, as a physician, you know that the parasympathetic nervous system handles exhaling. The sympathetic nervous system, the fight-or-flight one, does inhaling, so the heart speeds up a little when we inhale and slows down a little when we exhale. If people just for three times in a row, they could even do it right now if they're listening or while they're listening, um, take, uh, make sure you're breathing in such a way for a handful of breaths that your exhalation is about twice as long as your inhalation. So, for example, breathe on an inhale on a count of two, three, and then exhale. Two, three, four, five, six. You know, at your own pace. If you try that, two or three of those, boom, the needle on the stress meter has got to come back mm. out of the red. You know, at least in the orange, if not yellow, or even hopefully chartreuse or green. So that's a, that's one practice. Another is to relax the tongue. They're, the mouth is saturated with the nerve endings um, of the, from the uh, in, from the parasympathetic nervous system. And so, if you relax your tongue or do other things with your mouth, you directly um, connect with the parasympathetic nervous system, plus you get all those nice secondary benefits uh, of soothing, you know, by touching the lips and things like that. that oh, wait, wait, wait. Like, what do you mean? Like licking your lips with your tongue? Nothing. No, no, nothing too obvious. Uh, I mean that uh, in addition to relaxing the tongue, yeah. just sort of feeling like it's heavy or just relaxing. What I like about these practices, almost all of them can be done in public, you know, in the middle of a meeting or driving mm. kids to soccer or whatever, and, you know, putting up with the in-laws at the holidays, you can do these things inside yourself, and no one needs to know that you're changing your brain and being happy at the same time. Uh Um, So I was just saying there, with regard to the lips, people can unobtrusively touch their lips, like resting a hand on their their cheek when they're in a meeting. You know, people will do that routinely. I'm sitting here right now talking with you doing that. Mm -hmm. Well, you can have a little bit of your hand actually touch the mouth, you know, with a comfortable pressure. That's just a small example that illustrates a larger point that these days, I totally agree with you, Dr. Carroll, we're flooded with stress triggers these days, not in a way that we evolved to handle, right? And so what are we going to do? Well, we could change the world, which seems to be changing pretty slowly from my perspective, or we can work inside our own heads to become more resilient and get more skillful at the kind of machinery in our body-mind that manages stress and reacts to stress as as exhibit a getting more skillful with um the parasympathetic nervous system because that's our own inner um fire extinguisher (laughs) you know Uh that's what mother nature has given us to put out the the heat the fires of stressful responding and which also includes getting upset about things you know as you know you know the same machinery that's involved in racing away from tigers gets triggered when we're irritated or trapped in traffic or really worried about something or feeling blue you know those are stressful as well so if we get better at more skillful at you know more self-reliant with for example in this case the parasympathetic uh, wing of the nervous system that's like you know having a wonderful tool in your personal toolbox Uh to go through life 
Uh-huh. Yes, it's like carrying a therapist along with you. That's right. you got Dr. Carol in your pocket. That's right. That's right. Well, that's... So are you... Do you have a private practice? Mm -hmm. That's right. It's probably like yours. It's pretty small and contained and... Um, but yeah, I do. Mm-hmm. I and see people so, routinely. So, do, do people when when people come to you? Do you uh, teach them how to do these kinds of things? Oh yeah. In terms of my practice, um, I mean, I'm, I have a mixed practice. So, for example, uh, a fair amount of what I do is fairly conventional and not um, terribly shaped by this brain material. Uh-huh. On the one hand, for example, I was just speaking earlier. Uh, with um, a woman who's about to go into a divorce and how she can uh, not get upset about what other people think because she has no power over what they think. Mm-hmm. Right? So that's a pretty straightforward conversation. On the other hand, um, I uh, also routinely am talking with people about how to learn skills to manage you know, their bodies um, and their reactions and also to uh, turn increasingly toward positive experiences because it's interesting that it's generally positive experiences that are the major source of psychological of, of healing or or personal growth or spiritual practice. There's a place certainly for processing the negative, and I think Freud again and Jung as well are, made a deep contribution there and I'm a little leery of a certain amount of cognitive behavioral therapy that's about that's mm-hmm. to me very consistent with the American culture definitely Southern California culture of all being happy shiny smiley people you know um, so I think there's a place for recognizing the dark and the pain and the, and the loss and so on but generally it's positive experiences positive emotions um, that uh, are going to be the building blocks, really, of the mind and the life we want to have. You know, you got to pull weeds to be sure, but you wouldn't just want to leave a barren plot of land there. You'd want to plant flowers. You know, mm-hmm. you want to build up positive factors and so well, forth. I, so I do imagine, a lot of that in therapy. Yeah, I would imagine that the most um, difficult um, hurdle to overcome in trying to uh, let people know about these things, whether it's in practice or in in, in you know, uh, talking about the, your work or, or the book or, you know, the, there's a resistance. I mean, people who are crabby <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and are thinking, are overwhelmed with all the negative thoughts and worries and so on, fear and all of that. Um, when you start talking to them about the how positive, savoring the positive and so on, mm. um, you know, it's kind of like Scrooge, bah humbug. Right. Well... Excellent point. First, if they want to do that, they can. That said, I personally see, and I'm sure you experience it as well, a lot of longing in people for solutions these days. Yes. And again, as we know as therapists, there's very little as as motivating as suffering, and there's a lot of suffering out there these days that's looking for practical help like you offer or I try to offer in my books. Yes. All right, and we'll be offering more when we come back. We need to take a break. My guest is Dr. Rick Hansen. His book is Just One Thing, Developing a Buddha Brain, One Simple Practice at a Time. And uh, we'll be back with more. I I hope, you know, you have a very soothing voice. I hope all my listeners are feeling soothed (laughs) by listening to the show. (laughs) (laughs) Except for my voice, of course, which... which, um, on the show, anyway, I'm usually uh, uh, digging into uh, controversial kinds of things. 
Yeah. But this, but certainly, it's not controversial to say that we we all need to be more Buddha-brained, more yeah. um, de-stressed. So we'll be right back. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. Yeah! If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch, where we're talking about stressed out, get a Buddha brain. And my guest is helping you to get one. His name is Dr. Rick Hansen. He's the author of Just One Thing, Developing a Buddha Brain, One Simple Practice at a Time. He's a neuropsychologist, and we're, uh, we've been talking about some of the practices. What do you tell, you know, I was asking before the break about um, people who are the, you know, the people who, are, who need to do this most mm. are going to be the people who are the most bah humbug because they um, do dwell on all the fear and the worry and so on. So what do you do to help people um, take that leap of faith that it's worth trying these um, one steps at a time, you know, these these practices, um, to to convince them that, that it's worth trying? Because I presume, you know, you don't really see results after the first <laughs> few days. Sure, that's right. Um, so what? How, how do you do that? I think you're putting your finger on the million-dollar question in psychotherapy, coaching, any kind of learning, you know, anything from, anything from around second grade on, uh, motivation, right? And um, so <clears throat> to that point, one is I, I think there's a place for helping people understand that they really can do simple things that will produce results. And when people are in pain, when they're stressed or lonely or, or irritated or um, kind of bonked around, you know, by all the social and economic changes we've been through and the sense of being out of control, you know, in a big bus careening down the hillside yeah. with, the, with the, the drivers arguing with each other. Anyway, <laughs> uh, you know, at this time, so it, it, that's one point, just to appeal to reason, you know, enlightened self-interest. The second thing is I actually have a practice early on in the book, self-compassion, which you know is a big area of research these days, and there's a lot of focus on the idea that... Um, Compassion, the, the basic wish that a being not suffer, needs to be applied to oneself, not mm-hmm. just to others. And when we do apply it to ourselves, 
not self-pity, not wallowing, you know, a handful of seconds of simply acknowledging our own pain and in a friendly way uh, wishing that we did not um, suffer it. And by pain, I include very subtle things like minor exasperation or weariness or a sense of being kind of lost and not knowing what you're up to in life, all the way through you know, more intense um, and negative experiences. So in the in the book, for example, I, one practice is on self-compassion. And what's interesting, the reason I, I, I do a little trick here, because research shows that if we start by feeling cared about, we're more capable of being caring on the average. And so I start people with a little experience of opening to the sense of being cared about by thinking of people in their life today or in their past that did care about them. Mm. You know, maybe it wasn't a perfect relationship, but in, at least, but in at least one slice of the pie, there was genuine respect, liking, or appreciation, or even cherishing and love. So anyway, so people call up, they kind of prime the pump, you know. They light up those neural circuits, they start warming up those neural circuits by feeling cared about, receiving love, receiving inclusion, etc. And then, in the second step, turn that caring towards someone that it's easy to feel compassion for like a pet or a dear friend in trouble or a hungry child across the world. You know, we're naturally a deeply benevolent and compassionate species, mm-hmm. but we're not disturbed, all right? Compassion and benevolence is our home base, it truly. So do that. And then in the third step, now that it's easy, because, it, again, it's, um, it's easy for people often to be compassionate toward others, knowing what this feeling of compassion is like, this attitude of compassion directed at your friend, let's say, in need, now swing it toward yourself. And Mm. that's a powerful way that's neurologically informed that gets at the experience of self-compassion. So that's one way to get on your own side. I think also it's helpful for people to appreciate that if they really are going to run the marathon of life, which is not a sprint, right, they really need resources inside. They need to refuel themselves or very soon they're going to be running on empty. Mm -hmm. And growing up in L.A. in the freeways, I know what it's like to actually Mm -hmm. run on empty. So... Um, that's where, you know, I have a whole section of the book, part three, is on building strengths. Because, like you, I'm sure, being a therapist has made me a nicer person, but it's also made me tougher. And it's made me really realize that people do need to do the work inside to build up strengths of various kinds. And when people get that, you know, if they want to be more successful in their career or deal with their teenagers or navigate a complicated marriage or juggle home and work or just deal with the evening news or get or get on an airplane as you know uh, these days you know with fears of terrorism what have you they need to build up strengths inside so i have a lot of sections there and i'll give you one little practical practice mm-hmm. that people can do one of the ways to build up strengths is to take refuge and that may have a religious connotation for people which is fine if that's meaningful like imagine going to temple or to church or to the mountaintop or to the woods someplace that's spiritual for you also in our and again I'm talking about doing it in the mind taking refuge in the mind mm. of course literally do it crawl in under for me you know it's like sitting at a at a meal reading a book no one talks to me that was my refuge as a kid and I still use it sometimes today but anyway um <laughs> You know, maybe, but for a lot of people, it's doing, you know, it's doing things in their mind. Wait, wait, wait. Life. You just peaked my head. Oh, okay. <laughs> wait a minute. Don't run uh, don't with that one. When you were a little kid, you would sit at the table and read a book, and then no one would talk to you? You Freudians, you're all alike. No, <laughs> in the same way. I'm a developmentalist. I nearly got a master's in developmental I, psychology. I mean, that's so interesting because, yeah. I mean, that's, that, talk about forming uh, patterns yeah. in the brain. That's right. I mean, that's essentially what you then grew up to do. 
that was for me a refuge. Also, being in the hills outside my home was a refuge. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was a real refuge. Um, also, talking with my dad about science because he was a zoologist. He grew up in a he was a cowboy and he got interested in animals, became a professor, a zoologist. So, you know, the, my point is there are many kinds of refuges for me. I do have to say that just sitting at the dinner table, reading without my parents bickering, frankly, um, without anybody hassling me about some chore that was undone, that was a personal refuge for me. Uh-huh. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not ashamed of it. It still works for me sometimes. And, you know, actually, <laughs> I can't help continuing. My <laughs> psychoanalytic brain is uh, yeah, yeah, go for it was it. automatic. Put me on the couch. Um, well, that's what I do with my guests. Yeah, right. Um, but, you know, it's also, even even extrapolating it out even further, mm-hmm. um, it's like what you are are advising us all to do by essentially reading your book and taking refuge in that and in the practices that you suggest. Oh, that is true. And, of course, the greatest refuge, I think, for most people is other people, you know, both... Uh, enacted in live form, you know, like you and I are, I I feel a kind of refuge here. I mean, I've been on interviews that uh, were, you know, a little combative. You're you're authentic, obviously. You're probing and questioning, but there's a kind of a comfort here, and and I can feel your basic, you know, kindness, as it were, and I'm sure others do, too. That's a mini refuge, if you will, and and then often we, we all take refuge, perhaps, I hope, and bringing to mind simply, you know, those internal objects, right, introjects of various kinds, uh, the felt sense of those who have loved us or included us or stood up for us. Uh, so, you know, even though I think there's people really vary. I'm, I'm more introverted. My wife's very extroverted. Um, you know, I, I'm more fed by solitude, but I'm also really fed by contact. A lot of people are really, really fed by relationships. So for them, you know, they would never want to eat alone, and that's perfectly fine. You know, whatever works for you. Mm-hmm. I think there's a the fundamental form of diversity is neurological diversity. We have different temperaments. And so I would just say on this particular practice, find the refuges that really work for you, and then savor the experience. Get those neurons firing together so you're taking in, you're soaking in like a sponge, a hungry sponge, you know? You're taking in the food for your soul that you've always longed for. Hmm. And it's, yes, this is all so particularly important at this time in our, in our society, in our culture, in our history. I think well it is really personal. true. Yeah. And one thing I've appreciated about your own work is how you mingle the personal and the political, the personal and the cultural. You know, because they intertwine, don't they? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that I think has been helpful also for people is to appreciate, is to stand stronger against those forces that would make us afraid. You know, uh, whether it's your kid who's threatening to never love you if you don't give him a second helping of dessert, mm-hmm. let's say, or... Uh, you know, intimidating coworkers who are playing little head games, or, or at the largest scale, you know, various um, political forces that try to play on certain kinds of fears. Uh, you know, to me, it's um, it's a psychological act, but in an ultimate sense, it's also a political act to not let ourselves be manipulated, uh, because we're, as a human species, the human brain is very vulnerable to that kind of manipulation. Yes, and of course, you know, it's all. Um... Uh, I don't, it's, it's all related to these, these, 
going back to what we were talking about at the beginning, to these early pathways in the sense of, I mean, like kids, for example, who are bullied or kids who get picked last for their teams or kids who, um, you know, are still hearing the messengers of, messages of teachers or, or, you know, like you're stupid or you you can't read this or, you know, sit down, (laughs) you're doing a terrible job or all of these things that then, of course, uh, cause us to interpret things later in our life that may not be so fearful or may not be, um, you know, meant in that kind of way and yet we misinterpret it because of of these... um, patterns that we experience, these, tra- these traumas that we experience, even if they're little traumas, but still uh, rep- repeated traumas that we experienced growing up. Yes. Oh, there too. I mean, how do we deal with childhood pain? And uh, I think we have probably a few more minutes. Maybe I'll talk about one more practice. Mm-hmm. That's a good way to deal with, um, you know, this kind of yeah. shaping in childhood. Well, <clears throat> it's interesting. I saw one of the practices in the section of Brown Strengths is to risk the dreaded experience, mm. right? This one comes about halfway through the book after I've gone through a lot of other resources to get people ready for this one. But if you think about it, the fundamental structure of so much neurotic behavior, to use that kind of language, or the fundamental structure of, of suffering for people is sort of like three steps. Step one, there's a natural movement towards some kind of expression. We just want to express a feeling or ask for something or swing out in some way or, um, you know, tell someone what we really think and so forth. Okay. The second step in the three-step sequence is some associated fear of what will happen if we do that, based very much often on childhood experiences, either directly experienced or vicariously witnessed or imagined. Mm-hmm. All right? Seeing things, seeing your big brother get beaten up for daring to speak out mm-hmm. really sends a message, okay, I really better be quiet. All right? That's the second step, the associated fear. What's the, what's the experience that's dreaded here? And then the third step is the defense, the shutdown, the maneuver that you know, blocks risking the dreaded experience by shutting down the self-expression that might, in the mind of the child, now the adult, uh, call forth the dreaded experience. So mm-hmm. the, the way to undo this, you can just see it, is to understand that sequence more and more and in very careful ways, in skillful ways, risk the dreaded experience. In other words, risk doing today the thing that you, were, you learned to not do when you were a kid. And um, discover today, as it almost always happens, that actually the event that's dreaded doesn't even occur. In other words, they don't hit you, Mm. right, when you speak up, or they don't dump you, or they don't trash you, or, you know, uh, they don't laugh hysterically at your new business (laughs) idea. It doesn't even happen. Or even if it does, in a very unlikely sense, happen, it would not be overwhelming like it was when you were little. Because today you're not so vulnerable as you were, and you have a lot more resources. Mm. And then when it goes well, as it almost always does, then really register it. Do that, you know, taking in the good process I, I talk about, again, for about half a minute, to really let it sink in that you could afford to express yourself in this, extra, in this additional way, this new way, this new step, because the dreaded experience didn't happen at all or it was completely manageable, and um, that little price was worth the greater benefit mm. of expressing yourself. So mm. that, that's one of my, I think, Top five, frankly, yeah, personal yeah. healing and growth uh, methods I've, I know as a guy who's been doing this for 35 years. Hmm. 
Well, why don't you tell us now um, where how people can uh, go to your website, how sure. people can get the book, and so on. Thank you. Well, the easiest way would be just, uh, pardon me, Buddha's Brain, just buddhasbrain.com. That'll take you right to my website. It's chock full of free resources. Most They're freely offered. I think the book is 10 bucks on Amazon, so that's not too pricey. It's a good gift for the holidays. It's a stocking stuffer. Yes, uh, it that's is. one thing. It's a small book. You can fit in a handbag or a backpack or a stocking very, very easily. Um, so that's it. Uh, buddhasbrain.com. Buddhasbrain. Okay, that's easy to remember. Buddhasbrain.com. Yeah. And, um, okay. Well, um, I wish you a very um, <laughs> Buddha's brain <laughs> holiday. And um, I think that this is very, uh, very, <laughs> very calming, just listening to all these things. And, of course, you know, I think one of the, the values, one of the um, attractions is that you're not suggesting that people do really complicated kinds of things. It's, it's you know, I mean, you say to just just one thing, developing a Buddha brain, one simple practice at a time. So one, doing the same thing for a week or a month or, you know, and exactly. then going on to the next one, I think is a very doable kind of thing. Thank you. That's exactly what I hoped it would happen. So I appreciate being on the show, and I wish the listeners the best. Yes, well, thank you. My guest was Rick Hansen, Dr. Rick Hansen. He's, his book, again, is Just One Thing, Developing a Buddha Brain, One Simple Practice at a Time. The website is buddhasbrain.com. So thank you all for listening. I hope you, your brain has become a little more Buddha um, during this hour. Mine has. <laughs> and uh, uh, tune in next week. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat. 